As I told you, as we were talking earlier, I am incredibly honored to have you here. One of the, you know, as a former teacher myself and then overseeing numbers of teachers, um, burnout was a very real thing of teachers and it always broke my heart when people were leaving the profession. And uh, it feels like for me, you spent all, if not most of your career focused on fighting that. So before we start talking about your advice and your wisdom, can you just tell us who you are, a little bit about who you are and why you love what you do? Sure. Who am I? <laughs> I'm a teacher, a writer, a coach, a podcast host, a mother, a partner, a daughter. I see myself as a part of many communities that I love. It's interesting when you said the heartbreak of seeing burnout. And I think that heartbreak is worth unpacking. For me, the heartbreak has implications of not being able to serve the communities that I love, that I'm a part of. And so when I see teachers leave, when I see just potentially incredible educators leaving the profession, as I have for 27 years now, the heartbreak has to do with the way that our communities will continue to be underserved, with the loss in potential, with the loss of possibility. Um, I live in Oakland, California on the occupied and unceded land of the Ohlone people. And I love what I do because every day feels like there's a way for me to fulfill my purpose for being alive. Every day feels meaningful. Every day feels like I have opportunities to do what I do best to fulfill my own need for joy and satisfaction and meaning and to serve. Well, there's people who don't know who you are. I mean, besides going to look at the books that you've written or go to your online resources to help people immediately who are trying to uh, work in education, I would say follow you on Instagram because you do have, you do balance the gamut of, you know, the, the deep thoughts as well as encouraging folks to, to have fun and bring joy to their life. And so uh, can you tell us a little bit, I mean, I want to focus more today on uh, hot topics in education that people are struggling with right now, but also your your amazing book Onward. And the thing that I really appreciated about it at first glance when I was opening it was um, everybody who's ever been an educator or works with educators know there's a life cycle of the year, right? And you started off just owning it saying, here's a focus for every month. How did you land on that? What was the the wisdom behind giving us a thought or an action for every month? Sure. I feel like with very few exceptions, every year of my life has been so tied to the school calendar that I know the rhythm of the school year more than any other rhythm, I think. And so when I thought about the need for resilience, I really started mapping that onto what I've experienced and witnessed as far as sort of the cycle of energy for a teacher through a school year. And I mean the sort of emotional energy that allows us to respond to the dozens and dozens of challenges and changes that happen every day for a teacher. And so as I thought about what we need, immediately I started thinking about, well, there's a difference what we need in August versus right before Thanksgiving break or what we need when we're coming back from winter break, or what we need in May when there have been all these changes, some of which maybe we wanted, some of which we didn't, 
And so it just felt like I had to make that immediate connection between the strategy, the habit you can cultivate and the time of year. Context is everything in some ways. So yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, the, the wisdom you have of, you know, getting to know yourself uh, in kind of June, July, uh, coming back, trying to build community at the start of the year to every educator knows that November timeframe is uh, sometimes the lowest point uh, where you're, you're struggling, maybe a little February as well. But um, it's just really cool that you just framed your entire book around understanding that rhythm. Uh, so a question I have for you, you know, coming out of a year or a little bit more of a pandemic, as you look back at this year and you've been working with educators all across the nation, have you noticed that the rhythms have changed at all in terms of the months and how people are feeling? Or do you feel like it's kind of Groundhog Day and stuck on the same emotions for more than one month? I think that's a great question and really merits unpacking in terms of, so what have we been through in this last year? So many of us as educators, professionals, parents, partners, and whatever our role. So many of us have been in a state of survival. So first shock and then survival and maybe a little bit of adaptation. I think everything has changed in the last year and nothing will be the same as it was before, but our rhythms of the last year have been completely different. Nothing, there was no rhythm of the year. There was no, May, June, end of the school year, beginning of the school year. And so, yes, we definitely need to rethink how we cultivate resilience right now based on what we've been through in the last year. And I think the first thing we have to do is actually pause and say, okay, so what have we been through? What, what was this experience? What are we perhaps hopefully emerging from? I think, you know, it's clear that we are emerging. However, the near future still holds a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people are exhausted. There's sort of a whiplash of now we're in distance learning, now we're in some hybrid, no, nope, now we're back in distance learning because too many infections and deaths. So, oh, now we're back because now there's vaccinations. However, it's gonna take a while for us to read, reach herd immunity and there can well be more waves when school might be closed again, when there will be, again, so we're facing all this uncertainty and we're tired. And so there's a need for us to look at how we are building resilience with um, perhaps a different lens. So, I mean, you, you spent last several years, especially I think pack, uh, passionately going after helping teachers develop re resiliency. What, I know you have a framework per se. Um, can you just give us a little bit idea of the framework that helps you support teachers or you advise educators to use to start developing resiliency at any time in their career, or any stage or facing any challenge? Sure, so Onward is the book that is structured around the 12 habits that educators can cultivate to refine their resilience, to build it, to hone it, to refine it. We are all born with some resilience and we can increase it. And that's what's really hopeful and exciting. There are things that we can do every day, dozens of things we can do every day, actions we can take, as well as dispositions we can orient towards that will help us build our resilience. And resilience, I should say, is not just 
about surviving. It's actually about thriving in the face of adversity or in response to adversity. So resilience is not just let's grit our teeth and drag ourselves through it and sort of prop ourselves up and say, we survived. That's not resilience, that's survival. Resilience is when you experience a challenge and adversity, even from something as small as, uh, you know, an altercation with a student's parent to a global pandemic, anything. Um, and you come out of it recognizing you learned something, you cultivated deeper relationships with some folks, you feel stronger than before. That's resilience. And so we wanna really think about how do we boost that resilience? So the 12 habits in Onward, that again, you can start working on one habit a month, or you can also pick and choose and say, this is the one I need to work on now. There is a habit around understanding emotions, which I think might be the most important for any time and the most important right now. And most of us, you know, myself included, are pretty illiterate when it comes to our emotions. We just didn't get that kind of instruction growing up. We didn't get social emotional learning in the way that some kids in some schools are getting now. And we need it and we deserve it. And it's so liberating to understand our emotions because again, we're human beings and we have emotions. And yet we are rarely taught about how to recognize them, understand them, engage with them, make peace with them, make friends with them, learn from them and actually use them to thrive. So that's the chapter, that's the section. I think right now every we could just spend so much time on. Well, the part that I liked about, you, know, you, you took me back throughout your book of going back to that first year of teacher when I was ready to quit or uh, feeling like a failure or, you know, again, I didn't understand all these emotions uh, and especially as I advanced in my career. Uh, can you talk, I, I really enjoyed the, the cycle of emotions, you know, from prompting to interpretation. It just kind of gave us a good framework to help me recognize what is, what is happening right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think what's most important to understand about that is that in this, when we understand the cycle of an emotion, we can understand precisely where and how we can cultivate our resilience. And that precise spot is in between what happens and how you make sense of what happens. And so let's say a student rolls her eyes at you. That's what happens how you make sense of what happens. The story you tell yourself is what will ultimately allow you to build your resilience or perhaps deplete it. So a student rolls her eyes and there's a story you can tell, an interpretation you can make, which is she's so disrespectful. She constantly disrespects me. Teachers are not respected. This profession is just, I can't be in it. That's one interpretation, right? And I'm sure you can hear, okay, that's gonna drain your resilience. The other one is, she must be having some emotions. I wonder what she's feeling. Maybe she's feeling annoyed or irritated. She is a 12 year old girl. This is actually a good sign that she's helping me see what she's feeling. I could let it go. Maybe I could ask her about this. Hmm, I have some choice right now. I wonder what might make most sense given the time of day and what else I've got on my plate. So that 
interpretation, that second one, is which one which ultimately can boost your resilience because it allows you to feel more agency, more empowered. It connects you to compassion. Perhaps it leads you to a door or connects you to curiosity, which may lead you to a door of compassion, empathy. So we have options right there. This is in the cycle of an emotion. We can pinpoint the spot where we have options for how we respond and then for whether our resilience goes up or down. That's super empowering. Yeah, I think, you know, part of, again, a consistent theme that I felt throughout your your book, and I'm sure this is across a lot of your teaching, is uh, the ability to, to be mindful, so to make space uh, to really uh, think about your emotions. But, you know, I think about my world, you go from this meeting, you feel the emotion, then you have another meeting, then another meeting. This this first you know meeting or class is still very much on my mind. But at the end of the day, instead of pausing and trying to get mindful, I'm listening to music or I'm talking to someone on the phone. I'm never, you know, I'm watching TV. I'm never pausing long enough. Can you, can you describe uh, what mindfulness means to you and give us some ideas of how do we pause long enough to really understand our cycle of emotions? Yeah, great question. So the first thing I want to say is there are a lot of individual actions we can take and at the same time, the systems and structures and institutions in which we work also need to change. Mm -hmm. And so this book is not just saying to teachers, you know, get a better attitude. <laughs> like teaching is hard and schools are rough places. And there's a lot of burnout for reasons which I'm not gonna just say, well, that's because the teacher didn't do these habits, right? These are, there are real things that need to change in our structures and organizations and our institutions. And it is a problem if we, if you are running from meeting to meeting to meeting without five minutes in between, that's a problem. That's unsustainable. And, you know, I could ask you from a coaching stance, how's that working for you? <laughs> and yet I've asked so many people that I know it's not working. This is one of the reasons we see so much turnover. We see less satisfaction in jobs. We don't see the kind of impact that we want to have as organizations or businesses. We don't necessarily meet all of our goals because that reflection time, if you had five or 10 minutes in between those meetings, I know you would be more effective, more productive, happier, have better relationships with others. I know this, this is 25 years of research in watching how people work. So I wanna just you know keep an eye on the context we're in and say that needs to change. And how that changes is a conversation. Change usually happens, real transformative change happens for, sort of from the bottom up when folks say, you know, and this could be we set our own calendar. So we could start saying to ourselves, I gotta schedule five or 10 minutes, 15 even, that would be wild in between meetings. Or I have to have a limit on how many I have a day because you need to, what I don't want people to hear is that I'm saying, do this, do this, do this, add this to your plate, add this, add this. That in itself starts feeling like I can't do anymore. You know, I'm going to be getting up at three in the morning because Elena's telling me I need to meditate and then exercise and then do something creative and then have a good breakfast. And then, it, you know, it's not, we can't do that. We have to figure out how are we taking things off our plate? How are we prioritizing? What are we prioritizing? What is the decision-making criteria that we're using to figure out how we spend our time and not just keep doing and doing and doing and running. And now that we are in this pandemic 
phase where we're all working from home and it's a Zoom meeting, so many of us aren't even giving ourselves one minute between meetings. It's like this ends at eight, this starts at nine, you know, this is, or ends at nine, starts at nine. And so I gotta just say, we have to keep an eye on context. And then what, what is mindfulness and how do we do it? I mean, mindfulness could be practiced in the five or 10 minutes you have in between meetings when you simply do nothing other than sit back in your chair, lie on your floor, stand up, stand outside, get some fresh air and just say, okay, so what happened? How did I show up in that meeting? Was I showing up in the way that I want to be as the person I want to be? How did what I did and how I showed up in that meeting align to my values, to my vision for myself, to my sense of purpose in life? It's asking yourself those questions. What happened? Who was I? How did it go? If I could rewind that hour, what would I do differently? Those kinds of questions. So it's really creating the space and then figuring out which of the prompts or practices works best for me to feel more grounded, more centered, clearer. That's, you know, there, there's the slowing down in and of itself would be a tremendous boost to our energy, which again is all about our resilience. Yeah, I think uh, a couple of thoughts I have that first, thanks for backing up long enough to say, let's frame this, that it's not just about teachers do better, right? I was just very much in the, the framework. There's a system that we have to work on. I wanna revisit that in a second. I think when it comes to uh, mindfulness, you know, one of the things I've been working with my team on recently is being intentional about your mornings, right? So having some quiet time and really visualize your day. But as you've already experienced, you can tell uh, you're, you're, you're teaching me a lot because I know I have my meetings back to back to back and that can bleed over, but also, it doesn't allow you to, the, the mantra we're trying to work on is to show up and be present. So show up to the meeting, right, on time uh, and be fully present and in the moment. And if you don't give yourself that time, it's gonna be really difficult. And so that's, that's really strong encouragement. I appreciate that. I, I do wanna revisit uh, the harsh reality of our systems need to change. So when I'm thinking about a school system or a district, uh, what are those systems right now that you're seeing that you're very passionate about uh, seeing change soon in those systems? Ooh. To fight burnout. We'll, we'll say that just to fight burnout because I know that's a big question. So to, I mean, it's still maybe still a big question, but what yeah. are those systems that we need to, to work on to fight burnout for our educators? I think we need to start by saying what uh, you know perhaps by articulating or aligning on a vision what is the system what do we want this system to result in or to produce for everyone involved in it when i think about that i think about how a system could be designed to tend to and be responsive to the whole human being so we talk about the whole child but we don't talk about the whole adult as well. So the whole human being, could we recognize that people exist physically? Like we have bodies, we have emotions, we have minds that 
think and want to think in different ways. We have spirits that need tending to, and we have a, a will that is part of our spirit that wants to fulfill a purpose. However, we think about that agnostically, we all have a, a sense of a purpose in life. And so how do we think about systems that recognize our full humanity? And then the next question is, okay, so this system that we work in today, this education system, what is that designed to do? What was it designed to do when it was created in the 1800s? What was it designed to do? Who was it designed for? And how is it working? Who is it working for? I don't see, you know, to make some blanket statements, the overwhelming majority of schools that I go into, I don't see a whole lot of joy or intellectual vibrancy or healthy response to the fact that we all have bodies. I think about things like, I remember when I was a newish teacher and I learned, this is a silly anecdote, but I learned that teachers have the highest rates of any group of professionals for bladder infections because we never have time to go to the bathroom. I, I was so. like, oh, okay, that's true with my schedule. You know, the way it's like, okay, it's been four hours. Now I'm dashing down the hallway. Like, don't run kids, I gotta run. You know, like it's, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. How is it that we don't, we have professions where like we can't take care of our very basic bodily needs, but children sitting all day, five-year-olds sitting, 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 sitting all day. That's just not what bodies that are five or 11 or 12 or even 30 are supposed to be doing. So we really have to look at, I mean, we really have to look at just about everything. Yeah, I think uh, one uh, comment you made that uh, crystallized in my head pretty quickly is, you know, for a long time, especially working urban education, like I have, and I believe you have spent your most of your career, I feel like uh, we often, from the system, are always talking about students, 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 and it's basically encouraging our educators to burn out. I mean, they're going above and beyond. It's kind of going past them. And often I thought of, uh, you know, the Southwest Airlines model, which is about serving the their employees first. And because they're doing that well, they're sort of their clients better. What can we do to create that kind of system? Or what are ideas that you thought about uh, of how do we have school districts who are really focused on taking care of their most precious resources, their, their educators and frontline teachers? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I wish we could do is drop the false binary. It's not this first or that first. Like we're so interconnected, we can't separate this out, but the binary mindset is so problematic and shows up in so many places in our education system and in our world. So I just got a name again, that like underlying beliefs need to be interrogated and a belief that we can't do both is faulty. We can serve kids and teachers. We can do both. We, we can, we're incredibly resourceful, brilliant human beings. I mean, look at what human beings have been able to do. I'm like constantly astounded. And we can, we can figure out how to serve children and adults. I mean, where to start? There's, there's so many possible entry points that in any school or community, and any team folks could just literally start by saying, how do we, how do you want to start this conversation? Where do you want to start? What would make, I, I think a lot about what is the one easy change we could make that would make, that would sort of light us up to what could be possible and help us charge up the energy to make more changes. Sometimes the 
you know, what we're veering into right now is a sort of a conversation about how do you lead and facilitate change. And so sometimes I think we want to get people fired up. Like what's one little thing that could have a big impact that could have everybody say, wow, if we did these other things. So it's figuring out collectively, collaboratively with students and their parents and the community and teachers and custodial workers and everyone like what's what's a couple of changes we could make what's one thing we could try well one thing that um i was really poor at as an educator and really poor at as a district leader and maybe struggle still sometimes today is uh, recognizing and acting on the value of community and the importance of community to helping fight burnout and enhance our performance and to your point, thrive, not survive. Uh, my question is twofold when it comes to community. One, you know, when you're advising schools or districts, uh, what are systems that you've seen put in place that help naturally facilitate community for the educators? And then two, what's advice that you give to individual educators to, to find their own community? Mm, great questions. So I'll start with actually your second question. Great. How do I coach communities to find educators to find their communities in part? I want to name this up front because in all of the work I do, one of the sort of ultimate goals, North Stars, is empowering folks, helping folks build their capacity to do something. Sometimes when I've consulted with districts, I tell them, my goal is for you to not need me next year. I hope you won't need me. I don't want your business. I want to help you build the capacities to take on this challenge, you know, or you may need me for some other challenge, but for this challenge, I want you to not need me. So I want, similarly, I want folks that I coach or teach to feel like they can acquire the tools. So one of the first, I want them to see sort of the framework that I'm almost using to guide them. One of the first things I'll start with is just almost like a needs assessment. Again, what, what do you need? What, what's not being fulfilled in your life? And then what might be some ways to go about this? What might your journey look like for you to figure out how you might go about getting this need met? Who might you talk to or ask or, or watch or observe or listen to to get ideas, right? And so many, I mean, human beings are very similar in some ways and we're also really different. So if I, for example, am coaching an introverted teacher, they're gonna need different things than an extroverted teacher will need when it comes to building community. And I want them to go through the thinking, the inquiry process to figure out what they need and how they can get that need met. So, you know, there's, there's, and then there's people who are new to a community. There are folks who are in a community, but have shifted positions. They have different relationships. There are, um, I'm, you know, I really believe in people being able to solve their own problems if they have a safe enough space, if someone is holding space for them and asking them some provocative questions or probing questions. And so that's the approach I take to folks. What is it that you need? So, you know, I can give you a couple of examples really just from my own experience. Um, 
I mean, when I moved to Oakland and I was new to to teaching, to the school that I was working in, I was really active. I recognize now, I wasn't super intentional or clear about it then, but I was really active in those in that first year about going to different, you know, things like there's a Friday night science thing for how to teach astronomy at the observatory. Like, okay, I'm going to go to that. I mean, those are kind of things that this is n not rocket science to build on that <laughs> reference. Um, but, you know, doing that or going to the teacher's lunchroom, that didn't work for me. So then I started different approaches to make connections with folks in the schools, stopping in, asking teachers in my grade level for resources, information, idea. Like it's it does feel like work and it is. And you got to do it. Um, I had a child after I'd been teaching for about eight years and I don't have family in the area, neither my husband or I did. And all of a sudden I had this new learning area, like how, what do you do with a baby basically? And I, um, I reached out to the parents of my students. I saw them before, after school, I was like, what are your tricks for getting a baby to stop crying in the middle of the night? And I just, you know, this is this is the way I'm oriented. I reach out to people all over the place. I see, like, I'm the kind of person who will send you an email, knock on your door, say, hey, do you have a minute? Like, <laughs> I need help. So, um, but people go about this differently. You have to sort of figure out your recipe, your journey. And, and then sometimes what I do as a coach or a consultant or something is nudge people. Okay, you also asked about systems. I think well, that's I think, a good Sorry, I, I think where it came up from is that one, I'm glad that you started with the individual because I think about when I was a new teacher, I was teaching high school. So I felt like I could talk to the students as I developed relationships with them and ask them who have been their most influential teachers in the building. And I just started to try to get to know them because to your point, going to the uh, break room for lunch, you know, the teacher lounge w didn't do it for me. And so trying to find community, then I thought, all right, well, how could my principal or when I was leading schools or helping lead schools, how could we have created some sort of systems that encourage community, didn't force it to your point, because everybody has their own individual needs, but encouraged it. So I just didn't know if you had any opinions on that. Mm hmm. I mean, I think there's a there's some interesting questions to unpack about like what are systems, what is it teachers need. So one of the things I I think about, for example, for new teachers, one of the top complaints is going to be I don't have time. I'm so overwhelmed. I don't have time to do that. And that's what I remember when I was like, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to that. And you know, the observatory thing on was, was on a Friday night, and I remember I was so exhausted. I just thought I can't do this, and I did end up going. And I actually, I remember it because I made a really good friend, or someone who became a really good friend, and uh, who I collaborated with. Who, um, and I often think if I hadn't gone, it's funny because I this friend is the reason basically that I met my husband. So I often think about that Friday night. I'm like, if I hadn't gone, would I have met my husband? Um, but, you know, I think about teachers just being exhausted. And so could a principal provide release time? Could a, this is a system, it, it, you know, essentially is perhaps for a first year teacher in a secondary school, they're teaching, you know, six 
preps rather than seven or maybe three rather than seven. I mean, there's all kinds of implications there, but maybe they've got an extra release period or two per week when it's like, this is the time when you build community or you take that time and you go do your laundry or do what you need to do. So Friday night, you can go to the thing at the observatory, right? So what are the, how does a teacher's capacity get, get stretched? beginning teachers, it's going to be time, it's going to be finances in many places. So maybe it's also, you know, here's a stipend for, for PD to go to or other programs to go to, or maybe you just realize you need to do something like go to a regular yoga class. And as a first year teacher, I was not able to afford on my teacher salary in Oakland public schools, I was not able to afford a yoga class, I was barely paying the rent each month let alone like trying to buy one or two books from my classroom every month. So if my principal had said, you know, here's a monthly stipend so you can go to yoga once a month, I would have been able to take care of myself, maybe make some new friends in Oakland. That would have been amazing. So I guess when I think about systems, I'm also thinking about resources. I like that a lot, actually. Um, My wife taught in the Bronx. I taught in St. Louis. And as you can imagine, the cost of living difference is definitely different. So when she tells me stories like yours of, well, I couldn't afford this or that, it just, it blows my mind. And so to your point, how can our our schools and our our districts help support that and offset that? Um, At you, you talked a little bit about how to, uh, you know, self-care, you know, with the yoga part. And I think when so our organization you know we're most known for the seven habits and our seventh habit is sharpen the saw which is take care of yourself and we have examples of how to do that i think the refreshing uh piece of uh thought that you gave to me as i was going through your book was the gaps that people have in being able to practice self-care and i think you identified three the three gaps that i took notes on were you know kind of a skills gap a will gap and emotional intelligence gap so keep holding us back from being you know practicing self-care can you talk a little bit about that yeah i'm glad you brought that up there's so much talk about self-care right in in the last year of the pandemics like self-care self-care but what is self-care needs to be unpacked. And then why is it that we don't do these things that so many of us know we need to do? And so, you know, there, so I think about it as, well, we could have a knowledge gap. For example, I recently, maybe in the last year, found out that I'm super low on vitamin B12 and I started taking supplements and I feel so much better. I just didn't know that. That was a knowledge gap about my own body and the role of B12. I was like, oh my God, it's just missing B12. I could have written six books last year. You know, it's like, okay. Sometimes, so sometimes we just have these knowledge gaps. So we can have a knowledge gap about our physiology. And I think a lot of people do. I'm blown away by, I mean, that's an, I said, you know, we don't know a lot about our emotions. I also think we really don't know much about what our body needs in order to feel good. For example, sleep. And, and I do, I can kind of geek out for a little bit on the science or the neuroscience of a lot of this. I'm like, ooh, the endorphins and the, you know, what happens when you're sleeping right. and how critical that is. And we try to, so then here's the thing. Now we may have the knowledge, but um, I'm not sure if this will continue working if we think about what's the skill gap. I mean, we could talk about different kinds of exercise and the skill we need to know, like we may know 
that cardio is good for us. And so we might start running. And then after three days, we might find that we pulled something and we're in a lot of pain and we're like, I'm not going to run anymore because we actually didn't know some of the things that we need to know about how to move your body when you're running so you don't injure yourself. Right. So there can be that kind of skill, which is kind of skill plus knowledge. But, you know, sometimes like, no, you actually need to watch or work with a trainer or something to find to figure out like what's going on here. But I think that the the gap that people have more than any other is this sort of emotional intelligence gap, which sometimes also has to do, which is connected to why it's hard for us to prioritize self-care, why we may feel like, oh, I just, you know, I'm going to keep working rather than taking that hour to go for a walk, why we feel a, a, a an unceasing need to produce and do and be busy and prove ourselves and be efficient. That's, again, a belief system or mindset to unpack, um, but that is connected to emotional intelligence. It's connected to some emotion that we are experiencing consciously or not, which is helping us make a decision about how we spend our time. So that's the one that I really unpack with people, which gets to our our sense of worthiness and our, our sense of um, deserving well-being physical emotional cognitive spiritual well-being yeah do you have i mean you've got so many good resources on your website uh do you have something that as someone's listening right now they're thinking how do i unpack my emotional intelligence is there something you can point to them to or the first step or two other than just pausing and to think about it long enough how can we help folks because I, I do think to your point that impact on worthiness so many folks are just keep working 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 trying to figure out their worthiness that we don't we don't pause to recognize that we are worthy just because and so what's your advice for those folks right now well i'd love to direct people to a brand new program that i've created which is starting on march 22nd and it'll go for four weeks and folks can pick up the content anytime and the content will be released through my podcast as well as it's free. We're just, all you have to do is sign up on my website and you get four weeks of content for how to feel better. And the first two weeks are all about looking at your emotional landscape and understanding what is there. This is content that is actually relevant for anyone in any field, any profession, actually of any age. It can be done with kids. It can be done with your partner. And that's available through my website. Um, and that's a great place to start. It can be, I'm, I've designed it thinking specifically about the transition out of the pandemic that we're in and wanting to support people to take a step back, process the trauma of the last year, um, you know, hold those minutes, that moment to say what just happened and also to think about going forward and changes that they may want to make in their lives, in their, in their professions as we emerge. That's great. We'll, we'll make sure that uh, we point out how folks can get to that because I do think it's really important. And to, to kind of expound upon that, uh, you spend a little bit of time talking about the importance of play. And as a former athlete and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, probably unfortunately in this case, like a hyper competitive person, you kind of attacked my view of play, which I appreciated. Again, unpacking biases, unpacking our, our own thoughts. Can you tell us, you know, the importance of play as well as uh, walk us through kind of the definition of what play is and what it isn't? 
Sure. Okay, that one's really hard for me too. That's the hardest thing for me to do in this whole, I, uh, it's something I've really struggled with. But right. you know, and it's funny because then I'm like, oh, I'm gonna work on playing. Now I'm gonna be more playful, which right. is obviously <laughs> not the energy to bring to play. Right. Um, yeah, I did a lot of research for this book and this was the research I think was most surprising was the many benefits so it's so hard for me even to talk about this without immediately starting to think about the impact that is, you know, that will contribute to me fulfilling my purpose or to me being productive or creating, right? Which is like, okay, so I think about it, it's like, if I play, I'm gonna have more energy, it's gonna free up more ideas, and then I will be able to, which is ironically, not the way that researchers, so play, true play is supposed to have no purpose. Mm. It's just, play for the sake of play. So what does that look like? You know, we can get an idea if we look at three, four, five-year-olds, really, let's look at how little kids play. Are they trying to like be better, you know, writers by doing this or be more creative or be problems? No, they're just playing. It's good to be around little kids. So it's, you know, that for me, the moment I had that was like a breakthrough, I was like, okay, this is playing was Oh, how old was my son? I don't know. He was still a kid and he kept sort of wanting me to play with him. Come on, play. And I have to admit, I think it was like a Sunday afternoon. I was like, oh, I'm busy. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm always busy. And he was like, play. play. I finally said, okay, I'm going to play. Okay. I got to admit because the research was like, you need to play. So he wanted to, he, we had water toys and he wanted, it was a warm afternoon. He wanted to run around and squirt each other. And I said, okay, let's do that. We ran around, we squared each other. It was really fun. I forgot what I was doing. I forgot that I even had, you know, a, an ulterior purpose. I forgot that, you know, I wasn't thinking about how am I going to translate this into a blog? How am I going to tell people? I was just running around chasing him, getting squirted, screaming, wanting not to scare my neighbors, you know, falling down on the floor and like letting him drench me in water and laughing and going, oh, this is fun. This is really fun. Oh, I'm playing. <gasps> I'm doing it. Check. No, don't do that. So, well, you know, so, yeah. To, to your point, I mean, I, again, I, I, my wife and I are both, my wife was really a college athlete. I was a pretend college athlete, more of like a water boy, and then realized I didn't have the talent for it, but I was aspiring anyways. Uh, and so play for me with, with my kids is we'll go play basketball or baseball or golf or, and, and there's a score that we're keeping, right? Or play for me individually is I'll go run, I'll do a workout, I'll do something. You were clear, at least I felt as I was thinking through like what play is and isn't, that that's not technically play. And so that was a real interesting take that caused me to pause and reflect on what's happening with my mind and body during the times that I would call play if you had just asked me in a conversation about how do I play? Yeah, I mean, you're so conditioned into how you are engaging in and participating in you know, any kind of sport activity that that will be really hard for you to actually play in. And so for you, if I was like coaching you or directing you, I'd probably be like, you need a finger paint, you know, you need to do something that is a completely different realm mm. for which you have no comparative model 
because you are always going to have that no matter how hard you try to extricate it from yourself as a as an athlete so something for which you have you know you're only like yes you probably go into comparative mind because that's what humans do but it's not going to have the same kind of emotional triggers or responses from you it's not going to be like i'm better i'm worse <gasps> what's happening to me what's you know to your point, I, so I think that's really healthy because I probably spend way too much of my mind there. But it's something that my seven-year-old and five-year-old, it's really hit me, or soon to be five, uh, hit me a lot recently. We had a, um, a daddy Sunday with the two oldest and me, and we went to a restaurant where we could be way socially distanced with masks on and everything. But uh, we had uh, coloring books, tables, whatever, and they're coloring. And I'm loving watching what they're coloring, but then they would look at me and say, Dad, is this a nine out of 10, 10 out of 10, 11 out of 10, or a thousand out of 10? And I'm thinking like, guys, let's just color it a color. And I, I know for a fact, I've never tried to, to, to uh, have that rating system while they're doing some sort of art. But then I think, what am I doing or not doing that's causing that to be the norm? Because I do want us just to be in the moment and enjoy beauty for beauty. What kind of advice do you have for me? Heck, you keep giving advice for, for me in this, I'll take it of how do I continue to, uh, level set my kids and our family dynamic on not being so comparative. All right, so let's let's really unpack this a little bit. Um, when you recognize that in that moment, or even now thinking back to it, what emotions arise for you? Hmm. Uh, it's kind of a, a balance, right? It's always, I feel like emotions for me are always not good and bad per se, but there's like a positive aspect to it and it feels like a negative aspect. So positive is I, I do believe, you know, some of my competitive traits have allowed me to be successful, but there's also a detrimental side to that. It's like, what has that done to certain relationships? What has that done to let me pause and really enjoy the moment, right? Versus working on to the next. And as a dad, I want to obviously learn things throughout my life and have my kids grow and evolve in a way that I hadn't at their age. And so that's probably where I go to the deepest of, man, how do I, how do I live differently so that they can not have the same frame of mind of this comparative uh, cloud over their head all the time? So you invited my coaching or advice. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to say is you actually didn't talk about emotions at all just now. Mm. You talked about thoughts. Okay. And there's, and so this is, I said, like, this is learning for all of us. So when we talk about emotions, that can sound like when I saw, heard my kids asking this, I felt conflicted, confused, sad, proud, mm. uncomfortable. It's really interesting. The way that you responded to me is the way I'd say 95% of people respond. And what that uh, what that tells me is we are, you know, the, we are not, it's harder for us to access emotions than it is thoughts because we live in the world of thoughts and in our head all the time, right? right. We're always in our heads. And, and so to, you know, you could think about it as to balance out our skill set or to be able to draw on different resources, particularly in hard moments, because that, you know, that wasn't like a super hard moment. But when we hit the super hard moments, how do we access the knowledge and wisdom in our minds and in our emotions? And, and there's and this is the thing, emotions have been dismissed downplayed discredited emotions are considered to be 
unprofessional, a waste of time, even your framing is, you know, or your reference to like good and bad. There's, right. you know, that the, I look at emotions as like, this is an incredible untapped resource. We're, it's crazy that we're walking around the world, like not tapping into this resource, not understanding. We've got a gold mine that we never draw from in right. terms of knowledge and wisdom and insight and guidance and direction and energy. And so really, this is again, like for you to be able to perhaps to play in the way that you might want to play with your kids or to give them that space and opportunity, you've got to start with understanding your emotions and even understanding why it is that it's hard to access them or to connect or recognize them. It's totally normal. Like, I can't say that enough. This is my mission. If there's one thing that I want to say until I die, it's emotions are normal. We've got them and they can be our friends. Like, let's shift our relationship with them. I think uh, what's crazy is when you ask the question, I mean, I genuinely was trying to answer, right? Like I wasn't trying to like put on a face. I wasn't, I mean, again, I know we're on a podcast, but I really don't care. We're all, our, our goal of this podcast is change is messy. And so we got to come with our whole self. So I, I actually thought, and I think my team that works with me a lot would say, I am uh, incredibly transparent, probably too much to where I will share my, what I think are emotions. Now you've blown my mind and I'm going to have to figure this out. Good thing I got spring break next week to figure out what the difference is that I think I'm sharing emotions, but I'm actually not tapping into them. Um, this is great. I really appreciate super, you. Super common. I mean, this is a, I would say this is a knowledge gap, right? It's like, it's a knowledge and perhaps a skill gap. And what is the difference between a thought and an emotion? And how do we know if we're talking about thoughts or emotions? Where is the overlap? There is an overlap. You know, what does it sound like to talk about emotions? What are the, literally like, what are the words? What's the syntax? This is where I go. I'm like, okay, tell me what it sounds like. You know, what does it, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Um, you know, and how there's a, a whole sort of direction that we don't need to go in, but the way that our body is connected to our emotions and how do we actually building a better relationship with our emotions includes building a better relationship with our bodies, a deeper one, a one that's um, much gentler and, and deeper than what most of us have had. And then again, like, I just want to point to the context or the water that we swim in in our world, which is one that does not value emotions, that do, that doesn't actually value the body in the way that I think that um, that I'm referencing or that we need to, that sees right. the body as a as a machine through which we can be more productive and more efficient and create more, but that doesn't really work for many of us. Yeah, well, I think I mean for me, I'm I'm perfectly okay being a rebel with you of first recognizing it like before this before this conversation Lena I would probably say totally understand it I'm with you let's talk emotions and now you rocked my world at the end of it saying that wasn't emotion Dustin. which is so no it's so helpful it's, it's it's incredibly helpful so thank you for helping me personally um, my question before we go is um, last question we ask everybody is um, if you have advice for anybody out there who's listening uh, particularly educators, right? So whether district officials, school officials, or teachers, or parents even, what's one piece of advice that you have that you it's on your heart right now to help them take one step forward in the change that you want to see in this world? Hmm. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to give the, like, the challenge okay. advice. In other words, 
if you really want to challenge yourself, this is what I tell you to do. Write yourself a love letter and pile on the love for how you have been and what you've done since March of 2020, getting through this pandemic, write a long love letter by hand, detail. And then there was that moment when you lost your temper and you screamed at your kids. And then afterwards you went and apologized to them and recognized that you needed to take a day off. Like detail that love letter. Mm. In other words, look at look at yourself with love and kindness. Tell yourself, appreciate yourself for everything you've done over the last year plus as we've experienced this global trauma. Yeah, I think when you're saying, uh, yelling at your kids and apologizing to them later, I'm thinking, did you talk to my wife before we got on this call? That may have happened a couple of times during the pandemic. I can't believe I'm the only one, uh, but that's, that's really helpful. Yeah. So that exercise, can you just tell us a little bit when you've seen someone do that before, what have you noticed uh, it's kind of happened in people's hearts um, when they've done something like this. Yeah, so this is an exercise in self-compassion. And so this is one of the habits in Onward is compassion, which includes self-compassion or even which you could say uh, true compassion begins with self-compassion. You can't extend kindness and love and compassion to others without giving it to yourself first. Mm -hmm. Many people are in a state of exhaustion, physical, emotional exhaustion, and being able to recognize, okay, this is why, and I've done so much, and we've all screamed at our kids, we've probably all screamed at our partners, we've probably all heaped criticism on ourselves, and we heal by bringing a little kindness to those achy points. Um, and so just beginning the uh, the, the, by reconnecting with ourselves. I mean, I'm telling you, it is a hard thing to do, to write it really passionately and honestly and fully and genuinely. It takes a lot of courage and and it's essential. If we want to care for other people and love other people and create a world characterized by kindness and compassion and beauty, we've got to be able to give it to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I appreciate you coming here today and bring your whole head and whole heart to us, especially uh, when you took a couple minutes to, to challenge me, but also give me some really good coaching. It's clear that you are passionate about supporting educators and get, helping them develop resilience and mindfulness. Uh, and you're passionate for just serving people and communities in general. So I'm gonna encourage as many people as possible who don't know of your work or have only spent a little time in your work to dive deeper. Um, just because I think it can help all of us. So thank you so much for taking time to be here with us today. And I look forward to reconnect with you again in the future. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, cast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.